As Steve mentioned, we continue this morning in our study of this letter to the Romans. Uh, This morning we move into Romans chapter 10, and so I invite you to open your Bibles uh, to that chapter. Uh, We look only at four verses this morning. Uh, These are uh, four incredibly um, rich verses, and so that's all we would have time for anyway. Uh, but over the next few weeks, we'll look at these first few four verses of the book of Romans, of Romans 10 this week. Uh, Camper will explain the rest of Romans 10 next week. And then I'll lead us in Romans 11 the week after. And then, believe it or not, we begin the Christmas season. Um, it still seems like March. Something was missing this year. Um, but uh, so, uh, nevertheless, uh, that's, where, that's where we are. And then, as Steve alluded, we will pick up in Romans 12. Uh, after the first of the year. Uh, But for this morning, uh, our focus is on Romans 10, verses 1 through 4, but for the sake of context, I'm going to begin reading in verse 30 of Romans 9. So hear the word of our God. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? Uh, that is righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued law, uh, uh, pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in, in Zion a stone, a stumbling, a rock of offense, And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes the word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we come this day that you have given us, and we come to this word that you have recorded for us and pray that you would enlighten us. You would open our minds. You would open our hearts. Minds that we may understand what you have said, hearts to receive the message that we may live out uh, the light that you have given. Lord, use this time that you may be at work to do, to continue the work that you have begun. And may we find this time an opportunity to worship you as we come predisposed not only to hear and to consider, but predisposed to do what you say and to see what you show. And so, Lord, be honored by the attention we give and the lives that we live but be at work in us, otherwise our striving leads only to failure. We pray with great hope because of the certainty of your promise and your grace, which is ours in Christ Jesus through whom we pray. Amen. As we come to these 
words this morning, I, I liken them somewhat as a, a detour over a bridge. The reality is almost none of us probably like to do detours. We like to go from where we are to where it is that we're going, and we want to get there as quickly, as easily, and as directly as we possibly can. But in my own experience, there's been times where while chafing and maybe saying some things under my breath that I wouldn't say out loud, certainly not from a pulpit, um, about the fact that I have to take an unexpected detour, I have seen and experienced some things that were incredibly beautiful that I would have missed had I not been forced to take that detour. In some senses, these four verses that we're looking at are like a a bridge between what has gone before and what is coming up next. And in that bridge that that we are detouring through, we are able to see some incredibly beautiful realities of the way God works and the way the gospel works in those who believe. Martin Lloyd-Jones had said that in chapter 9, Paul explains to us why anyone is saved. In chapter 10, he explains why anyone is lost. And yet, in between, we wrestle with a number of questions that all pertain to how do we live in light of God's sovereignty. And in these four verses, Paul gives us four practical applications, somewhat of correctives, but certainly to be applied to not only our thinking, but uh, to our our lives, the way that we uh, live in relation to God. As we begin, we see in first is how we are to respond to, to God's sovereignty and to particularly to the idea of God's divine election and and the doctrines of of predestination. In verse 1, Paul says this, My uh, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, who's the them? Well, the them is Israel, whom he has been writing quite a bit about, his own people. Uh, But in Romans 8, Romans 9, he reveals certain things that were quite astonishing. First of all, he says not all Israel is Israel, and not everyone who was of Israel is among the elect. So not everybody who was born into uh, the descendancy from Abraham biologically is necessarily counted as part of the people of God, and they will not necessarily all be saved. And then because of that astonishing statement, Paul goes in and explains the reason anybody is saved is because God chooses those whom he will have mercy on. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And a lot of people get tied up all in knots in the whole idea of this idea of divine predestination, doctrine of election, thinking that it just seems so unfair and I can't worship a God who's like that that would choose some and not choose others because it just seems like he's so unfair. And it causes a lot of angst. In one way, perhaps understandably. And then on the other extreme, you have people who, you know, seem to have no problem with this doctrine of predestination, and then they decide, well, God chooses some, he doesn't choose others, I'm not going to waste my time with the people that he doesn't choose, and so they spend their time trying to figure out who's the elect and have almost no love for people who don't show any hint of faith or of belief or of being a Christian. And in this passage, though, Paul says something that really 
is important for us to understand. How do we, how do we respond? How do we live in light of the fact that God is sovereign and he chooses those who are going to be saved? And Paul says, here's how he lives. My great desire is that they'd be saved. And my prayer is that they would be saved. So in other words, the idea that God is the one who is choosing in no way changes Paul's passion and his affection, nor does he spend time trying to figure out things that he can't possibly figure out, but rather having a love for his people, a love for the people that are around him, he greatly desires that they would be saved, and he prays that God would bring salvation to them. He's still trusting and knowing that God is going to do what God is going to do, but he intercedes on behalf of them. He demonstrates a love. And in this, Paul is demonstrating an incredible thing for us. He is demonstrating for us what it looks like to live out sound doctrine, and particularly the doctrine that God is sovereign over all things. And not only is he demonstrating for us what it is to live out sound doctrine and live out the life in light of the doctrine of election, but he's also showing us what it looks like to love people even when they disagree with us. Because the people that he's included, the people who have not received mercy, who have not trusted, who have not believed, they are presently disagreeing with Paul, and yet he still loves them. He's still praying for them. So the doctrine of God's sovereignty is something to be recognized, but it's not something to cause us angst, nor to keep us from loving those who are around us or even the people of the nations. Love them, pray for them serve them. This is biblically faithful doctrine. And then Paul goes on and he's talking about them, but he's talking not only about them, but he's talking about religious people in general. He's describing uh, Israel, but it is the same truth of those who cling to their religion. And as he's speaking of them, in verse 2 we see this, and he's further talking about how we ought to live. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, he's saying there's something very commendable about the, the, these people, the people of Israel, these, these very religious people. They, they have a passion. They have a, a zeal for God and for religious or spiritual things. But what's amazing is what Paul is saying here is that it is possible to have a zeal for God and a passion for spiritual things and that it is not necessarily a good thing or it's not necessarily a sufficient thing because it is possible to have passion and to be wrong. It's possible to be zealous, but to be zealous without knowledge or with insufficient knowledge. It's not that these people had no knowledge. They had knowledge, but they were missing the heart of the revelation of God, of God's grace, of God's promise for which he had raised up his people in the first place, which was the promise of a, a redeemer, of a savior who would come in their place to deliver them. And this verse reminds us that we need both zeal and knowledge as we live out our lives. The old Puritans used to look, say it this way, we need both light and heat, light being insight, heat being passion. 
And, and they recognized, particularly in their day, that there was no way to have light without heat or heat without light. I mean, if you think about it, they didn't have these incandescent bulbs that could brighten up a whole room and then have no temperature. If they were to have light in their day, it came by fire. There was no way to have light without the heat. But there was also no way to have heat without a fire, which would also bring light. And their statement then, even though technologically we've moved on and we can have light without heat, we can have heat without light, but the spiritual statement still remains that we are in need of having both heat and light in our lives. And the reality is you all probably know someone who has a lot of heat, a lot of passion, but very little light. People who are energetic, enthusiastic, but tend to be shallow and often even heretical. Not intentionally. It's just that they, they don't know any better. I remember when I was living in, in Pittsburgh, I was chairman of Young Life for Pittsburgh's eastern suburbs. We were having a ministry report to a young lady who was passionate, excited about what she was doing on campus and had gathered a number of, of students around her. She was doing a tremendous job, and in her report, she was just kind of going on, and she was one of those high energy, and you know, the, what I was hearing is, yeah, blah, 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 blah. You know, anyway, that's uh, some really beautiful things going on. And at the end, and she says, it's just a God thing, and then she went on and just, I don't even remember specifically what it was, but it was one of these things that was you know, incredibly well-intentioned. It just was biblically untrue, and I just you know, said thank you, and in, in, deep inside, I was cringing and thinking, if you would only just get, get some knowledge. On the other hand, you probably know people who have a lot of light, but no heat, a lot of insight. And that very next day, I was reminded of that because I went from Friday night having a Young Life ministry meeting to a presbytery meeting. Where some man in the presbytery stood up piously and pontificating and explained why our presbytery wouldn't let someone like John Calvin in. And again, I just cringed and thought, if you would only get some life. You know, on one hand, they needed light. The other hand, they needed heat. They needed heat, passion. It, just, it, was, just, it was just kind of a deadness. And, and you may know people that, you know, they're, they're, they're right. They have tremendous knowledge, tremendous uh, reservoir of facts, but check their pulse. You're not sure they're actually living. When they pray, it sounds so polished, and yet... You're not sure they care that God does anything. But everything is in its proper place. What we need and what we want is to have light and heat together. We want passion that is kindled by truth. We want passion that expresses things the right way. But as I was reading this, I couldn't help but asking myself the question, so which way do I lean? 
And quite frankly, depends what day you ask me. But I think it's a question not just for me, the question is also for uh, you. W which way do you tend to lean? Do you tend to lean more towards you know, passion with thinking maybe knowledge is overrated? Or do you tend to lean towards the knowledge and yet you're afraid to live in fear of perhaps making a mistake? If you're one here who has the heat but is lacking the light, then I would just encourage you to make the discipline of studying the Gospels, not just the Gospels, but the Gospel itself, to, to look at Jesus. And as I've heard it described, is that you don't just read it like you would read any other book, but study what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is depicting, the way a, a soldier would study the letters from home, clinging to every word, knowing that they're written by someone who loves you. Let the love of God grip you. Don't get caught up only on the facts so that you have the checklist, but don't ignore the facts, but hear them through the love because the love of Christ will enlighten you and make you hungry to know more about him. It won't diminish your passion. It will inform it and empower it. On the other hand, if you're somebody who leans more towards light, but not a lot of heat, then I would encourage you to, to read biographies of some of the saints who have gone before us, some of the great uh, missionaries, or whether of previous generations or now, as, you know, coming to mind, you know, the, the, uh, the biography of, of Jim Elliott or uh, the biography of Eric Little, who, you know, they made, uh, um, uh, you know, a film of his life, Chariots of Fire, who after that went on to be a missionary in China, and at the end of World War II was captured by the Japanese and actually died even though he was given an opportunity to, to leave. He died in prison camp a week before the war ended. He, he stayed because he wanted to love the people that he was there with. He wanted to be the light of Christ to them. There's incredible biographies that are out there. William Carey, the Moravians, a passionate people who came together with different theological ideas, but came together and revered Christ and then realized the world needs Christ. And the reason that their church closed down is because everybody left on the mission field. What a great prayer. What a great vision. I mean, it's not my vision because you'd fire me, but that's, you know, that's, but it really sort of is. I mean, what a great thing. Sorry, I don't have a job anymore as I apply to the next place. Why? Everybody's on the mission field. And you hear how God was at work, and you see these people, not only from their, what, they, what they, they knew, but what they were doing, and you see a passion, and that passion is intoxicating. And read the biographies. Go on a short-term mission. Engage here locally in, in one of the local mercy ministries. Participate in the shelter when the opportunity comes up again uh, this year, or go work at, at, at the Grove, or, or hand out food at, at one of the food pantries. Just engage people. Knowing that you 
are bringing the light of Christ to them and find that in addition to your knowledge, you have a, a zeal. But Paul says this as a description, but it was also a bridge into an expression of their problem. See, these very religious people, while they had a zeal, while they had a, a passion, they were missing the reality of the gospel and, and the promises of the gospel. And we see the heart of their problem in verse 3. In verse 3, it says, For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they missed what God required. They missed what God provided. But having some idea that God requires righteousness, they wanted to be good people by whatever measure, by whatever scorecard they thought mattered. And this is not a problem unique to them. This is a universal problem. The reality is all of life, all of our lives, it's been said, is, is a struggle for righteousness. We all want to be considered good people. We all want people to think well of us. We all want to do good. And then those who are aware of God and who are conscious of God, we want God to be pleased with us as well. And so each of us chooses something some things that we believe gives our lives meaning and value and then merit as we more or less do our best in these areas, or at least we value these things. And what Paul is saying here is here's the problem that these people experience, and it's important because religious people today also experience the same thing. Every one of us here experiences the same, same challenge. is that they, they missed what God had provided and they decided to work on it on their own. And, and the problem is the scripture tells us that without faith it's impossible to please God. And any effort that we engage in, whether it is religious or not, whether it is spiritual or not, whether it is sound biblical or not, any of the things that we engage in, Apart from faith, when we present ourselves to God, when we present it to God, as it, 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 we're told it's like handing God a bag of filthy rags. We may be impressed with it. Everybody around us might be impressed with it, but God's not impressed. We can't impress God, but he's not asking that we do so. I thought about it on Friday because I was working on this, but... It's interesting because uh, Friday I was working on my message and the doorbell rang. Went down and it was a workman to fix our heat, which I thought was kind of kind, but wasn't anything wrong with our heat. Nobody had called him to come fix our heat. He'd come to the wrong address. Now, seemed like a nice guy. What if I, wanting to be nice and not wanting him to feel bad, said, you know, go ahead. Come on in. Heater's over there. He went about his business and he, you know, did a good thing and went on his way. 
did he do his job? Did he do something good? Did he do something that's commendable? Well, depending on how you're looking. Well, I mean, he intended to do a good job. He did the work. He did the work to the best of his ability. He did something for somebody else. But the problem is, what he did wasn't necessary. And what was necessary, he did not do. And I thought, that's what an incredible illustration. I didn't have him come in and do our heat, but what an incredible illustration of the way that we are inclined to work. Our natural instinct is to just be at work and to do things. And yet, if it's not what God has called us to do, and if it's not fully what God has called us to do, we are wasting our time, which many of us do. Paul here is saying, look, they, they had the zeal, but they were ignorant of the gospel. They were ignorant of what God's demands and what God provides, but hungry to be counted good, hungry to be viewed as good, hungry to be good people. They did a lot of things that would be considered good, but they chose to do things on their scorecard rather than to receive the gift of God that fulfills God's scorecard. It's what Paul calls the righteousness that comes from God. Martin Luther has a, a wonderful way of, of, of exp- expressing this righteousness that comes from God. He calls it passive righteousness. Listen to what Luther says. It is called passive righteousness because we do not have to labor for it. It is called the righteousness of faith because it is not righteousness that we work for, but righteousness that we receive by faith. This passive righteousness is a mystery that someone who does not know Jesus cannot understand. In fact, Christians do not completely understand it and rarely take advantage of it in their daily lives. And so he's talking about this righteousness that God gives, which comes in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is our righteousness. In other words, Jesus had come. He is fully righteous. He did everything that the law requires. He did it because he was propelled by a right faith. The best definition I know to define what is true righteousness is not what is considered good, but doing right things because it is propelled by right faith or right faith propelling us into right action. And Jesus is God's righteousness. And we tend not to think about it. We only focus on ourselves. God had a faith. God knows he's holy and he will not have anything unholy in his presence. He also, as part of his faith, understood that we, though created after his image, perfect and good and perfect harmony and righteous at the very beginning, had plunged ourselves into sin and are no longer righteous, though we strive to pretend to be. And so therefore, we're now alienated from God. So with that two pieces of faith, that God is holy and won't have anything unholy in his presence, we who once were righteous and holy are no longer and cannot become holy on our own. He gives to us his action because of his faith propelled him to send his only begotten son into the world 
to become like us, to take on our nature, to live perfect righteousness, not only as a demonstration of what it looks like, but to do it and to eventually have that counted as ours because he did it for us. He came and did our work for us, and then he paid the penalty that we deserved because we didn't do what we were supposed to do. In the first place, he was crucified, crushed for our iniquity, and then rose for our salvation. It was God's righteousness that sent Jesus. It was Jesus' righteousness that volunteered, that went to the cross. Christ is fully righteous, and then he is our righteousness when we believe, when we trust that God has given him as our hope, our salvation, and as our, not only our standard, but as our righteousness. And what Luther says is, look, if you're not a Christian, you, you can't understand that. But even as Christians, it's still such a mystery. And we, when he says, very few take advantage of it in our daily lives, is we believe that for the sake of our justification for getting saved. But many of us believe that after our conversion, or we function as if, if it is to be, it's up to me. God started me. I appreciate that. Now I've got to live this whole thing out as if somehow we're going to do the things that are going to merit our righteousness. And what Paul is pointing out for us here in this passage is that when we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of the righteousness that Jesus offers us. In other words, when the gospel is just our ticket in, or the gospel is what Jesus did plus what we do, when we we change the gospel in that way, we miss the righteousness that is given to us in Christ. And then our natural default is to seek to establish a righteousness of our own, because we know we need to do something. We feel that. Listen again to Luther. The person who wanders away from passive righteousness has no other choice but to live by works righteousness. If he does not depend on the work of Christ, he must depend on his own work. And so what he's saying is that there are, there are people who have every good intention. They have a zeal. But their zeal is without knowledge. Whether they don't know the gospel in the first place or whether they have shelved the gospel for the sake of their own good, their own labors. And when that happens, they strive, doing good things, thinking that it gives us what we need, but ultimately it deceives, just as Paul is saying, it deceives Israel. See, when we don't rest in the righteousness that Jesus gives us, we will find our righteousness, what we believe to be righteous, in other things. We look to establish our own sense of value, our own sense of worth, our own reputation based on something else, and often it's something good. And so for Israel, it was the Mosaic law. That's what Paul was saying in the end of Romans 9 and here in verse 10 is, look, God gave them the law. The scripture tells us that we know the law is good when the law is used lawfully, when it's used properly. But they said, well, God gave us the law, so we will keep the law. And then God's got to accept us because, you know, we keep the law. Except that no one keeps the law. 
And when you take seriously what God says about the law, he says this. If you violate the law at any point, you're guilty of violating the whole law. The law is not a checklist of things by which I did these, you know, 95 out of 100 things, so therefore I get an A. If you violate it anywhere, it, it, it's, it's, it's like crystal, precious crystal that if it's chipped anywhere, the whole thing is broken. And so if you fail to keep the law, if you violate the law in any place, then you aren't keeping the law no matter how much of it you think you are. I mean, take a, you know, a, a broken crystal vase that has a, a hole in it. You don't say, well, 98% of this is still great. You know, that just because it doesn't hold water anymore. Just because it's a little bit broken, it, it, it is, it's entirely broken. And for Christians today, we not only may appeal to the law, but we would appeal to the morality. Thinking, well, I'm pretty much a good person. And that becomes our righteousness. Others, particularly in reform circles, might appeal to their knowledge of doctrine and continue to pour themselves in and, you know, can, can you know, quote you beginning to end of the Westminster Confession of Faith and feel like, look what I've done, look what I know, I mean, and look what I, look what I believe, I believe what God has revealed. We see it in social justice activism or missions engagement. We see it, people, you know, with our, our American work ethic. I work hard. I'm a good person. I provide. I, I'm generous. Some in their parenting, parenting righteousness. You know, I do this and pressure is on their kids, but people want everybody to look at the kids and say, well, you must be a good person. Some it's open-mindedness. You know, I'm not rigid, but I'm open-minded. There's any number of things, whatever it is that comes to mind that you think, that I think, makes you or makes me a good person. We need to ask, are we twisting something that is good and trying to make it stand up under a weight it was never designed to stand up under? Are we asking it to be our standard of righteousness? Have we made our own scorecard? And it's not that these things are bad, which is what makes it very confusing. And Paul is not saying they were bad people. He's saying, here's the problem. They did not submit to God's righteousness, but they established a righteousness of their own. It's important that we understand that that is our tendency and continually remind ourselves of God's act of righteousness. And we are declared righteous by believing. It's not only found here. Paul says in Philippians 3, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or from any good things that I might do, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on our faith. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he, Christ, God made, God made him, or I'm sorry, God made him, Christ, to be sin who, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Christ, who is righteous, was counted as being sin, 
so that as we believe in his righteousness, we are counted righteous in Christ. Jerry Bridges calls us the great exchange. We who are not righteous are credited as being righteous while Christ was credited with our sin. But when he conquered death, he's righteous in his fullness now. But it's always by trusting, by believing, by receiving the gift of Christ, by seeing our identity in him, by finding our value in him, by boasting in him and not in anything that we may do. That we are fully righteous and we cannot add to that. That righteousness theologically is called an imputed or accredited righteousness. What's the difference between something that is credited and something that is our own? I've used this illustration before, but people find it helpful. It's the difference between your credit card and your debit card in your wallet. If you go to some place and you pull out your debit card, it's yours. It's the money is yours. But if you pull out your credit card and you use it, you have somebody else's, the bank's money, but it is credited as if it's yours. Whatever your limit, or a gold card or an unlimited card, and, and, and is, it's not yours, but it is credited as yours. They don't say well, this is not yours. Spiritually speaking, when we are trusting in Christ, when we recognize his righteousness, his righteousness is ours, unlimited. It's credited as ours. And the amazing promise of the gospel that empowers us and changes us and transforms us is when we rest in this credited righteousness that comes by faith, then we begin to see change taking place in our lives and we begin to grow in actual righteousness, which is we begin to do right things because of the right faith. We begin to do right things. We begin to love other people because Christ has loved us. We are propelled by the right faith to do good things. But to do the good things apart from being propelled, we go back into offering God filthy rags. And this is not just something that Paul talked about. It's really something that many people overlook. But Jesus says this is the priority of our lives. The end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, seek first. It says this is the priority of our lives. It's a twofold thing. The kingdom of God and his righteousness. How often we look at that and say, okay, here's what we need to do. Priority, seek first the kingdom of God and then become righteous. Do good things. But that's not what Jesus said. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God's righteousness. God's righteousness what sent the Son in our place to become our righteousness. That as we believe, is counted as ours. The righteousness that comes from God. It is a call to prioritize constantly, rerouting, looking at our lives and saying, am I putting my hope, am I putting my trust on anything that I have created, any scorecard I've created, or am I recognizing it all flows from Jesus? And then Paul finishes by saying in verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, this has been misunderstood in saying, see, Christ came and there is no more law. Well, that's not what the scripture teaches. Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. So if that's the case, it would make no sense to think this. But this word is the end, meaning it is the goal. Christ is the goal of the law. See, the law drives us to Christ. Christ embodies the law. It drives us to rest in him. And then when we are in him, he empowers us to live the law. But it is the end of the law 
for our striving. We don't appeal to the law for our righteousness. We appeal to Jesus. I tried all week to make this, you know, all fit nice with a nice bow tie on this, and I, I couldn't figure out how to do it at all. This is just incredible gospel truth that Paul finds necessary to remind us of as he bridges from explaining that God is sovereign and then explaining how anyone receives salvation. He's showing us why some don't because they trust in their own efforts and the glorious promise that he has made to those who will believe. My challenge to you is to look at your life and to ask yourself, what do you find yourself hoping in and boasting in? And then to reorient your thoughts to God's gift of righteousness, which is more than sufficient, it's abundant, and which belongs to anyone who believes. Let's pray. Father, we we come with thanksgiving this day and for this word. And I pray, Lord, that you would free us by this truth. And in that freedom, we might see the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of life, the beauty of your love, and we would live in light of that love. Bless us, we pray, to the glory of your name. Pray in Jesus, amen.